Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants, located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 26 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. We're currently in the depths of tax season. It is March, early March right now, be mid to late March by the time this podcast gets out. And so with my head buried in the sand on the tax stuff, we thought today we'd get into a little bit of the gap side of things, the accounting, because Michael has a little more time to answer all these listener questions and the client questions we have here. So we're going to do a Q&A on GAP stuff, and uh, are you ready to educate me on GAP? Absolutely. It's my favorite topic. I feel like I know a lot about tax, but then when it comes to GAP, I have no, I only know like basic theoretical concepts, and that's pretty much it. And I feel the same way about tax, so I learned a lot from you for, about tax, and I'm hoping to teach you some about GAP. Thank God for people like yourself, because GAP can uh, get quite boring to me, at least. <laughs> but today it's going to be exciting. <laughs> well, I'll try to keep it exciting. All right. First question here. Wheeler Accountants, we're thinking about purchasing enterprise resource planning or ERP software, and we have budgeted $250,000 for the software and implementation costs. We expect that we'll be able to use this software for at least three years. Can we capitalize the software? How about the implementation costs? Yeah, this is a really good question, and we get this a lot because the treatment of software, because it isn't intangible, sometimes people think, oh, is this expense? I I can't uh, see it and touch it, so is it not a fixed asset? But it definitely is a fixed asset. And so as long as it qualifies for capitalization policy, so most capitalization policies are um, $5,000 or more in expenditures and would last more than one year. And in this example, the cost is $250,000 and they're planning on using it for three years. So it definitely should be capitalized. And then their threshold was what, 5,000 you said? In this example, it's 5,000. We see ranges in our client from 1,000 to 5,000 as a capitalization threshold. So anything under that would normally be expense. But there's no hard rule and gap. It's like a per client basis and like a what's reasonable kind of thing. It's it's a what's reasonable for that client industry, but there are no hard and fast rules and gap for what the capitalization threshold is. Okay. Because for tax, we have the different thresholds for writing stuff off and it actually depends on whether they're getting like certified audited financial statements or they're not, right? And we have like a Yeah, because you can go up to 5,000 if, right. if they have audited financial statements. So yeah, in this example, it would be 5000 And then in regards to implementation costs, because that is all part of setting up the software and creating this asset that they're going to be using in their business for the next three years, that those costs would also be rolled into the, the acquisition costs and would be amortized over the, the three years. Is three years a normal time frame, or would you see people extending it longer than that? And do they try and do that to keep revenue net income higher by spreading out the write-off or, you know, what sure. kind of games can we play? Yeah, sure. How are we solving for gap here? Sure. It, it, it's definitely an estimated useful life. And I have some nonprofits that literally will use 
uh, a laptop for seven years. So <laughs> guidelines would say like three years for a laptop, but in their practice, they're using those laptops for seven years. And so in this example, most of the time we see software as three years, but this could be, you know, the, the best ERP system and they don't see any need to change for the next five years. So then it could be capitalized and amortized over a five-year period rather than three years. So again, it, in GAP, it's really about guidelines and what industry practices are and, and how those specific companies are using it. And then what would you recommend for companies as far as you know, like a, a process to document these decisions, because these are all internal decisions that are happening in their accounting department or accounting staff of one or whatever. And so are they writing like a memo to the file and sticking it in there? What do they want to do to have in their records? Yeah, definitely a memo to the file, looking back to previous software purchases and how long they've used that system for to help uh, substantiate what they're going to use for their estimated useful life. And we have templates and that kind of stuff we can share with them on the we, we certainly can help on, on the consulting end. If it's our audit clients, we can make recommendations to them to uh, provide that type of support. And then what about if this was, uh, this is also kind of off the question, what if it was like more of an internally developed software, like their uh, custom programming or something? Is that a different treatment than for GAP? Well, then um, internally created software can still be capitalized and all the costs related to the actual development of that software can be capitalized and then amortized over the useful life. And then one example that we see a lot is we see a lot of software as a service. So they could enter into a contract where maybe they have use of an ERP for the next three years. On that contract, then that would be expensed monthly based on how much they're paying monthly for that. So if they're doing like a software as a service kind of thing. Just for software as a service, then it, it would fall on the, the contract agreement and expense monthly. Okay, cool. Is that covered on that question? Yeah, I think that, that covers that. Our next question uh, is from a nonprofit client. Dear Wheeler Accountants Audit Team, we received an email from a private foundation today letting us know that we are going to be receiving a $500,000 grant. The grant begins July 1st, 2019 and runs for two years. The funds are required to be used for a special initiative that we are working on. Since the grant's purpose and its purpose and time restricted, should this be recorded as deferred revenue? When should we record the grant? So we get this question all the time from our nonprofits on should this be deferred revenue? So the, the concept of deferred revenue, especially when it comes to grants, as is a really old concept. So now it's considered a restricted grant. And so the restricted grant needs to be recognized when when it's either received or that it's estimable. So in this case, so they they received an email and the email came in here in March and their year end is June 30th. And so this grant will be for a future period. So they will still record the $500,000 at the time that it is estimable. And at this point, they know that it's $500,000. They understand the terms, so it can be recorded. So they would book a pledge receivable and have temporarily restricted revenue for the $500,000. And then this one was actually further restricted for a purpose. So once that purpose is met, then they would release those funds into unrestricted to cover the expenses related to that. That seems so weird to me, though. But the, so the revenue then is going to be recorded when you get it, even though 
the expense associated with the revenue may not occur for the next couple of years or something. It seems, Correct. Seems backwards it, from normal accounting it, logic. It is a little backwards, and that's why a lot of the nonprofits get hung up on this is because um, we're taught in GAP and accounting that we have matching principles, right? So we want right. to match the revenues with the expenses. The idea behind recognizing this as a temporarily restricted is still a matching principle that you're receiving the funds, but you you have those funds for either a future time period or for a purpose. And then those funds are released into the unrestricted funds as they're spent and covers those expenses. That's just the balance sheet, balance sheet classification thing. That, that is right. a balance sheet classification, correct. But the revenue is still happening up front when the money comes in. Correct. And is the is it because it's restricted that happens? What if there was no restriction on the grant and was just a general thing? Yeah, I guess it would still be revenue when you get it then. So in this example, say that they were told that they're getting a $500,000 um, pledge and they're going to receive it in June they would still recognize the revenue based on that email because they understand the terms and it would be recognized as an unrestricted grant. And then what about if it was conditional or something? What if like they had to meet certain requirements or they had to give the money back or something like that? Would that then change the answer? Yeah, absolutely. So if it's a conditional grant, they can't recognize the revenue until they've met those conditions. Okay. Man, that not... Not the answer I would have expected. <laughs> All right, next question here. Hey, Wheeler accountants, we're selling software licenses along with maintenance, and we pay commissions to our sales teams when they execute a contract. I've heard that under the new revenue recognition standards, ASC 606, we may have to defer some of our commission expense. Is this true? So, so there's a lot here, and uh, we've, we've previously done a podcast on revenue recognition, but the commissions are uh, a whole uh, separate piece of this. So let's peel this back a little bit. So the customer is selling licenses that are non-refundable and non-cancelable. The sale of the actual license is recognized when the software is delivered. Their, their maintenance is done under a two-year contract. And so that revenue for, for the maintenance is then deferred for two years and recognized monthly as the maintenance services are provided. So then the, the direct selling costs, including commissions, would follow that same logic. So we would recognize the commissions related to the license portion at the time that the, the license is delivered. And then for the maintenance portion, that part would be deferred and recognized over the contract period. There's also indirect selling costs. So, so maybe there's a bonus pool that's related to this and mm -hmm. the VP of sales will get an additional bonus. Since it's not directly tied to a contract, then none of those costs have to be uh, deferred. Those would be recognized as they're paid. Okay. So that, I mean, it makes logical sense, to, at least to an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> now there's some matching, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, we have a lot of startup clients, especially in the early phases where they're kind of just running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to put out one fire after another and deal with stuff. And often we see back office and accounting is relegated to like the one of the very last things they deal with because they're focusing on the business, which makes sense, right? They want to be focused on bringing in customers and making money. So it, it seems like some of this stuff gets so granular, it can like, take a lot of resources from the company, 
are there any suggestions you have for a company starting out on uh, systems they can put in place or things they can do to help make sure they're starting to pay attention to this at an early stage so by the time they do grow and they do need an audit or something, they're a little more prepared you can save on costs? Yeah, you know, we, we try to stress that gap is gap. And even if you're a startup company and you don't have a lot of resources, that these are all things that are still needing to be tracked. It doesn't matter if you have $500,000 in sales or $100 million in sales. The treatment is still the same under gap. But we definitely recognize that these should be tracked starting out. We have templates to track the, the deferral of commissions. Commissions also need to be checked for if, say, the contract was canceled after one year and they weren't taking the maintenance anymore. Well, at that point, then the, the uh, deferred commissions would be recognized. So it's something that needs to be kept up on. You know, we have some pretty simple tools that we can use to, to help track that. But it's something that, that needs to be on the radar. And so even as a startup company, investing in your accounting is, is really, really important. In terms of like uh, setting up the invoices and everything, like instead of using QuickBooks, you know, you're, you're having them set up different items in QuickBooks for the different types of revenue, like the license versus the maintenance and that kind of stuff. So you can then reporting on it later, like some of those kind of things that aren't probably that difficult to do in the beginning, but could definitely help as opposed to just like having an Excel spreadsheet of an invoice somewhere and then entering as a single line item in the accounting software. And then you got to go find it all later and break it out. It's a lot of man hours. Yeah, right? su such a good point there. So many of these startup companies don't really think about their chart of accounts and how they're going to be transact or recognizing transactions. And so in this example, you have software where the license is being recognized immediately and then you have maintenance. If you just dump that all into one bucket, that's going to be really, really hard to track. So having those proper GL accounts set up in the chart of accounts to start with is really key to keeping track of these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for lack of a better phrase, you can get away with it for a while, I guess. But <laughs> at some point, you're going to have a have an issue. You're going to have a really expensive first audit. Right? Yes, it, it can make for a very challenging first audit or, or maybe not even possible to have an audit. And then you'd have to bring in consulting to, to really get things cleaned up before an audit can even be prepared. And that's, and that's somewhere we'll, we'll step in and, you know, if it's a software company that's on a fast trajectory and doing really well, you know, they're going to get an audit from one of the bigger, you know, maybe national firms or something, right? But they're going to be paying a lot of money and paying, you know, $200 an hour for interns getting coffee type stuff to, <laughs> to fix their revenue and go through stuff, whereas they can they hire a firm like us or another smaller mid-sized firm that can do some of the audit prep and help dig in and clean up some of the stuff before the audit. So the audit's not such a mess and so costly, right? Yeah, absolutely. That That's where we, we can provide a lot of value in coming into these tech companies when they're going to have their first audit or, or their thinking that they might need an audit in a couple of years, that's much better that we can get in there, get things reconciled, understand their policies if they don't have things documented, like we're working on documentation of, of revenue recognition for one company right now. It's like a 10-page memo, mm -hmm. and the analysis all has to be done. It all has to be documented before the auditors come in. And so the more lead time that we have, the better that process goes. Right. 
and just makes for a smoother audit because the auditors are really coming in to actually audit and they're not in this position where they're like quasi creating stuff for the client and audit. I mean, you know, we, yeah, we, we have to be careful as auditors. So we, we either serve as consultants to, to our clients or we'll serve as auditors and, and we can assist our audit clients, but, but not at the same level. We, we can't be making decisions for them. We can't be doing the reconciliations for them mm -hmm. or we can do that if we're brought on as a consultant. And if it's in the middle of the audit and they don't have capable accounting staff that they're constantly pushing back and causing delays, again, it's going to increase the cost of your audit. Absolutely. We see that all the time. Before we move on to the next thing, I have one more question for you on the uh, commission portion. Do you, do you find it often where there's actually different commission for the license versus the maintenance? Or is it all kind of like one thing and you just do a pro rata allocation based on the total price? What are you seeing in practice? So I've seen it both ways, actually, where there's a, a single commission and then we do allocate out. Usually they'll break out. It's, you know, 20% of the license cost is, is the maintenance. And so then we would do 80% of the commissions would be related to the license and 20% would be related to maintenance. Other companies spell out that, you know, if you sell a license, you're going to make 10% commissions on maintenance. It's 5%. And so then we'll break those out separately as well. And again, just good sales records then on how you're allocating those costs is important. Exactly. Making sure that's documented. Sure. Okay. That was a big one. Next question. Hey, Wheeler Accountants, we've been carrying a large net operating loss, NOL, I know what that is, <laughs> and research and development credits that have created a deferred tax asset on our balance sheet. How are the new tax rates going to affect our deferred tax asset? So this one took a lot of people by surprise because they do have these assets on their books. And they, they have future value, right? Because they're going to offset future tax liabilities. What many people were surprised about was that because there was a significant reduction in the tax rate, that actually reduced the future value of those assets. And so in 2017, we are seeing a lot of companies when we're working on their tax provisions actually taking a tax loss, so a write-down of, of those deferred tax assets and increasing their tax expense for 2017 because those assets will not have as much value going forward. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing in the news that, you know, Bank of America took like a $2 billion loss on their deferred uh, tax assets. So it makes the discussion with our clients a little bit easier that, yes, you are seeing additional tax expense in the current year, but you will have tax savings going forward because the rates have decreased. And I guess on the opposing side, if they have a deferred tax liability, they're going to see a um, a positive tax benefit recorded? Exactly. And why is it 2017 that that hits when the new rates don't go into effect until 18? Because at, at year end, we're looking at what the carrying value is and what the future benefit of that asset is. And because we know it's technically, it would be considered like impairment, right? Because that asset in prior year was worth more because the tax rates were higher. So if they're offsetting, say they have net operating losses and they were expecting to get a million dollars tax benefit going forward, 
Well, now they're not going to be able to get that full million dollars because their tax rates lowered. And so because we know of the impairment as of 1231, that's when the expense is recognized. That makes sense. It's going to be used in the future period. So yep. That's why we're, we're taking all the ones. Okay. Hey, look, your gap guy answered a sort of tax question. <laughs> Did all right. Okay. Dear Wheeler Accountants, I'm pretty confused on the accounting for our stock option plan. We've been valuing our stock option plan quarterly using the Black-Scholes model and recording stock compensation expense. What do I do when there is a forfeiture during the year? Also, what is the journal entry for when a stock option is executed? So th this does puzzle our, a lot of our clients, and, and we see stock options used regularly with our tech companies. And so um, Black-Scholes is a, a model that is used to value the, the stock compensation as it's vesting. So many of our clients have stock options that typically have like a four-year vesting period. And over that vesting period, the Black-Scholes model would recognize the stock comp expense. So what ends up happening is that they pretty much understand once they understand the Black-Scholes model. But what, what they don't understand is, well, what happens if there's a forfeiture? So in regards to forfeitures, in the Black-Scholes model, they, a forfeiture rate, so an estimated rate of forfeitures, is already built into that model. But what's a, can you back up and explain what a forfeiture is? Sure. So if, if an employee is terminated or decides not to execute their options, that's considered a forfeiture. And so there was really no expense related to that. The, the employee got no benefit from it because they either left before it vested or their, um, their options were underwater and they decided not to execute and they term out. And this can be applicable to either vested or unvested options then? This is going to be just the unvested ones. So this would be both. And so, so there's always questions, well, well, this employee terminated and they had, they, you know, we've recognized expense in the past for, for these options, but then they didn't execute them. So why are we not recording anything for the forfeiture? And so it's really because it's already built into the model. So it's kind of smoothing the expenses out over the, the vesting period. And if, if the forfeiture rate was really low, your, your stock compensation expense would be higher. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a question that comes up all the time. But now we have under ASC 718, we have a new methodology that we can use. So we wouldn't need to estimate what the forfeiture rate is, and we could record when a forfeiture actually happens. And so there's some benefits to that because it's simpler and, and people aren't confused about, well, what do I do when there's a forfeiture? But the, the bad thing about that is then it doesn't smooth out your expenses. So, so you'd be recognizing those forfeitures if you had a bunch of forfeitures in one year, your, your stock comp expense is going to jump around a lot more. Is that, do you think investors would find that more confusing? I think, it, I think it's going to be more confusing for investors and then more explanation will need to be given about, you know, what's happening with forfeitures instead of just declaring what the forfeiture rate is. Mm -hmm. And then we also get a lot of questions about, so what happens when an employee executes a stock option, right? 
And so because we are recognizing expense, the basically the benefit that the employee is getting over the, the vesting period, mm-hmm. when they actually execute the options, then they then it would just be recorded at the option price. So for instance, if the strike price. So for instance, if um, this they recorded a strike price, or I'm sorry, they, they executed on their options and it was $1,500 in cash and it had a one cent par value and there was a, a thousand shares, you would debit cash for $1,500 and you would credit $10 to common stock and the remaining 1490 would be recorded to additional paid in capital. And the question that we get a lot of times is our clients are like, well, wait a second, that those stocks are worth $15,000 at the time that they were executed. What do we do with the difference? And the, the answer is that it's actually already been factored in because under the Black-Scholes me- methodology, it is recording the expense over the vesting period. So that expense has already been taken into consideration. And then when the exercise, you're just booking the actual transaction that's happening, which is the cash coming in, the cash coming in and the shares. An additional equity issue, basically. Correct. Yeah. Okay, good. See here, we got another question. To my favorite auditor, Wheeler Accountants. We currently have a PTO policy where employees that have been with the company less than two years receive three weeks of vacation a year. And after two years of employment, they get five weeks of vacation per year. Is it legal to provide a cap on the amount of vacation an employee can accrue? We also provide three days of sick leave per year. Can you remind me why we don't accrue this benefit? Yeah, so PTO seems to be a mystery to a lot of our clients as well, and just kind of understanding how that gets recorded. Certainly a limit is acceptable and actually recommended. So putting a cap on the PTO so you you don't build up a huge liability for an employee that never takes any vacation, and it will also help encourage them to take vacation if they're not accruing anymore. So we usually recommend a one to a one and a half times max. So basically in this example, the max that they can accrue is five weeks in in a year. So we would recommend that they would put a cap at say five weeks to seven and a half weeks would be the cap. And so once an employee reaches that cap, then they would not be accruing any more vacation until they've taken some vacation. And then what about sick leave? So sick leave is a use it or lose it policy typically. So if the benefit isn't paid to the employee when they leave the company, then it's not an accruable benefit. So when they're when an employee takes sick leave, then that's expense in the period that they take it. And again, because they're not able to uh, accrue and get that paid out, that's why we don't accrue it for as a liability. Okay. And actually, the client here asked the uh, the next question, which is what I was thinking also. We were also thinking about changing our policy to be unlimited PTO, like many of the other tech companies in Silicon Valley. What are the ramifications? So we just <laughs> recently got this question, and we are seeing a trend with our, our tech companies in Silicon Valley. They're not only wearing T-shirts and shorts to work, but they're providing unlimited uh, PTO. 
And in, in quotation marks, on right? Exactly. So, first of all, if if you're switching from a traditional PTO policy, where in this example they could accrue up to five weeks a year, so they have accrued balances. Each employee has PTO that they've earned. Mm-hmm. So you cannot convert to a unlimited policy and just forget about those balances, right? Because at the, that time, the, those employees have earned that amount. So there's a couple options that, that can be paid out at the time that there's a conversion. It could be paid out when the employee terminates, and that means that you would hold on to that accrual for each employee until they, they terminated or at a later point you decided that you were going to pay them out. But in California, you you can't take away PTO that has been earned. Yeah, and that's why it makes sense to keep it as a liability because that's been accounted for and it's a legal obligation of the company at that point, right? So we're going to carry it even if we change our policy and then just, you know, remove the liability once it's been paid. Absolutely. And so I would pay as soon as possible. It's going to cash out at the current salary. salary. Yeah. So that that's only going to get more expensive for the company. So in in this situation, we recommended because they did have sufficient cash flow that they do pay that out because you're absolutely right. And that's something that, that gets missed often is that, hey, this is paid out of whatever their their rate is at the the time that it's paid out. So if you held it until they terminated and they terminated five years later and now they're making $15 more an hour, well, that, that liability, you've had to track it. It's been increasing and and now you have more expense related. So each year the company then is uh, revaluing it all at the current rates, like at the end of the year in a single journal entry basically or something? Correct. So the, the PTO is accrued at current rates based on, on what their PTO balances are. Okay. And then with the unlimited policy moving forward, because there really is now, you know, no quote like PTO accruing because they can take it whenever they want. It's there's no more accruing PTO, basically. It's just part of the salary expense it, ongoing. Because it's part of the ongoing salary expense. So when they're on PTO, it, it's recognized as expense in the current period. And when they leave, there is no liability to pay out because it's pretty much, you know, they're, they're going to use it or lose it. There's not a defined benefit there. In this situation, we made some recommendations for really setting some parameters. So for instance, if Wheeler accountants were to consider going to an unlimited uh, PTO policy, we certainly wouldn't be allowing our staff to take PTO during tax season when it's our busiest time. So with this client, they, they had quarter ends and they had sales requirements. And so we recommended that, A, they that if an employee is going to be on vacation, that they need to get that approved before. So you can still have unlimited vacation, but Mm -hmm. it needs to be approved by a manager. And then the last week of each quarter, it was kind of all hands on deck for them. And that's the way that they operated. And so we recommended that they say no PTO during this time, unless there's an emergency. Or if you take it, your desk is cleaned off. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, and also, I'm just also kind of curious, have you has companies seen people taking more or less or the same PTO under these new unlimited policies? Like I've talked to a few clients and 
and friends and everything that are what companies that have these policies and there's like an unwritten cultural rule basically that no one's taking vacation or very little vacation so it almost seems not not genuine to, to do the unlimited ETO. Yeah, you know, you know, I've seen it go both ways. I mean, I've seen it successfully implemented at a law firm where attorneys are pretty much working anyways. And so if they're answering emails from the beach or they they are technically on vacation but but tend to be working for those vacations. And then for, for my other clients that have considered it, it, it just really doesn't have a, a huge impact on the amount of vacation. And there is some cultural understandings that you're, you're not going to just go and, and take two months off because you wouldn't be able to perform your job. And that, that's the key is that, right. that your job still has to get done, right? But there's less tracking, which is nice. A lot of us having less, you know, administrative work to deal with. On, less uh, administrative work to deal with. Um, the, you won't have to approve it on your balance sheet as a liability. Um, so there are definitely some benefits to it. And if you have people that are more like in sales commission-based types or even like, you know, you and I, we, we basically have an unlimited PTO policy, but we don't get paid more not billing. <laughs> you know, so it's it's uh, you know, if you have someone more more compensated based on production or what they're they're doing, then why does it matter how much PTO they have or get? Because it all boils down to what they bring to the table to the company. That's yeah, very compensated. Very true. All right, one last gap question here. Wheeler Accountants, we are moving our office and have a few questions about the impact on our financial statements. As you may remember, we had some significant leasehold improvements at our current location. We had intended to stay in our location for 10 years, but our landlord sold the building and we need to move. The current leasehold improvements have a net book value of $25,000. Should we continue amortizing this amount for the remainder of our original lease agreement? So the answer here is no, because they are no longer going to be using those leasehold improvements. They do need to be expensed as a loss on disposal of assets when the company actually leaves the building. Mm -hmm. In this scenario, they had intended, they had all intentions to stay there for the 10 years. So that was the estimated useful life. And, and keep in mind, it was estimated, right? So unforeseen circumstances came up, and so they needed to charge that off in the period which they abandoned those leasehold improvements. Right. It makes sense. They're not going to use them anymore. Yeah, exactly. Next portion of the question. Our new building is going to require significant leasehold improvements. We estimate that the leasehold improvements will be $100,000, and our new landlord has agreed to pay $50,000. Do we record just the portion we pay? The lease is for five years and has one option to extend the lease for another five years. Should we amortize the leasehold improvements over five years or 10 years? The great news is that we negotiated six months of free rent, so our rent expense, our income statement for the current year will be way less than last year. Well, <laughs> yeah. you see a catch coming there, right, Matt? <laughs> so the actual full $100,000 would be recorded as leasehold improvements. And so that the journal entry there would be that they would debit leasehold improvements for $100,000, and then they would credit accounts payable or, or cash how, however they paid it. Uh, for $50,000 and deferred rent for $50,000. So they would record the full value of those leasehold improvements. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second part of the question was, well, should we amortize over five years or 10 years? And they, they've already experienced an issue, right, where they had to leave early. But if management's intention is to do the second option, 
or I'm sorry, extend for additional five years, mm -hmm. um, then they would say that the estimated useful life of those leasehold improvements would be 10 years, and they would amortize those over 10 years, which is a little different than tax treatment, right? Yeah, it is. We, we have to make an adjustment. It's another book tax difference. The entire, all these questions throughout the entire day, I've been thinking like, oh, tax is a little different. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should do a tax versus gap update at some point. That would be fun. We could do that. Yeah, so, and, and this makes sense to me, too, because, you know, if we're, like, advising our landlord clients the way they look at it, you know, they're offering, quote, free rent for a few months, but really they're just amortizing that cost over the entire period of the lease, and they're taking into account this is how much I'm really leasing it for per year. It's all, you know, you look at it in terms of, like, how much are you getting over the entire period of time, even though it's going to be front-loaded with, with free payments. Yeah, so, so there is no such thing as free rent, especially under GAP. The free rent would need to be straight-lined. And then there would be a liability for the deferred rent that hasn't been paid yet. And so that way, you know, like the comment from the client said, hey, our expenses will be way lower. It's like, well, no, we, we need to match, you know, you had use of this asset and, and there is an expense related to that. Right. And, and most people tend to think in, think in terms of cash flow, right? So they, they think in terms of how the cash flow happens, and that's very important how you're running your business, but it also has wild distortions, and that's the, basically the entire point of having gap financials that kind of smooths things out and makes it easier to understand like long-term trends because you're seeing the entire impact, not just having this distorted view of what's going on based on a single snapshot or time period of the financial statements. Yeah, and because all companies have to follow gap, then there's comparable when you pick up financial statements of one company versus another if they're both under gap then you can understand and it does make it a lot easier to, to compare right versus seeing this one company you're like wow their rent expenses super low <laughs> they're so profitable i'm going to invest in them and how did one, they do that well we just went in their building and it was so nice <laughs> yeah, this one has really high rent and their, their net income's low and so i'm not going to invest in them yeah so it definitely gap helps us speak the common language which is useful, you know, just put a lot of integrity involved in all these scenarios, and that's why you have a job. And uh, I you know, like that you appreciate Gap, because uh, sometimes you give me a hard time about it, so. <laughs> I, uh, I learned a lot today on, on a bunch of this stuff, and knowing the Gap stuff is important, and it's kind of good to go back and refresh that after I'm so long and like a tax mindset all the time, you know, so it's strictly focused on tax. It's good to remember the basic accounting principles behind stuff, and uh, you know, like I said, it's important. I just don't want to get in all the nitty gritty. That's why you do it. <laughs> well, well, hopefully uh, you didn't uh, didn't fall asleep in that. But uh, I, I think there is some really valuable information there, and, and a lot of the questions that we do get from our clients. And again, if one of our listeners has a question, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Or that's all for today's episode of Debit This Credit That podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Prepare or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.